So you're you're sitting there comfortably in your booster seat, Corey? <laughs> yes, I am. Are you tall enough to uh, go on this ride that we call the Wages of Cinema podcast? <laughs> yes. My butt is very happy that I am sitting on a special booster cushion from this point onward recording the podcast because even when we bring the mic down all the way, it was still kind of a strain for me to reach it. <laughs> so, <laughs> For those of you who haven't met Corey in the real world, she is a little bit of a short gal. She uh, rests at a comfortable uh, four foot eleven. Yes. Not even a full five feet. You're five, four foot eleven, a full foot shorter than me. <laughs> but that's that's fine because we're not here to talk about your height, though. We could, I'm sure, we could get a podcast about that. But um, we're here to talk about. Uh, do I really have to talk about this? Yes. Tyler Perry's acrimony. He was beautiful. Gotta give him that. I was everything he needed me to be. I was strong when he needed me to be. I played weak. 18 years seemed to pass like days. He wouldn't cheat on you, would he? He's not touching me. So if he's not getting it from me, he's getting it from somewhere. You lie and you cheat. I'm Diana, Robert's fiance. You ever considered that maybe there's another way to look at this? <laughs> I'm surprised this didn't have like a second title to it, like Tyler Perry's Acrimony: Confessions of a Crazy. <laughs> X bitch. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So if you're noticing an enthusiasm disparity between me and Jack, it's because. Oh, you think? <laughs> I'm the one who really wanted to see this movie. No, I mean, look, you know, it. I mean, aside from the fact that I would have to have driven you to the theater, like I. I was a little curious to see this just because, all right, for those of you who don't know who Tyler Perry is, and hopefully you do, but uh, he's more popular in America, so for our international listeners, um, Tyler Perry is basically the self-made billionaire, I guess you could call him, who has his own studios, and he's done a series of movies, mostly where he dresses up in a giant, like, not even, dra not even like to the extent Eddie Murphy did, he just throws on a wig and a dress and I'm a dear. I'm, oh yeah, I'm going to come in here and be funny because I'm a big black woman who does it. I'm not trying to make fun of black people, by the way. I'm, you're cool. Uh, <laughs> now things are getting uncomfortable, aren't they? No. The thing about Tyler Perry, though, is he is a, a very successful businessman, but I kind of get the sense he might be successful in a kind of shady way. <laughs> a lot of his empire is built on a mound of crap. Yeah. So, I years ago, we saw his movie Temptation, Confessions yes. of a Marriage Counselor. And this is the only other Tyler Perry movie I've seen, I should say. We also saw this because it looked, uh, frankly, like a kind of fun, bad movie. It... it and for those of you who never have seen it, confession, uh, temptation, confessions of a marriage counselor, um, 
is also kind of like this movie in the sense that they're about crazy infidelity drama. Um, now, in that movie, you had much more of like a Jesus spin on it. You had much more of a religious uh, hammering that over your head type of morality going on. Uh, because a woman goes with this guy she meets who's a super rich dude and basically leaves behind uh, her man. And uh, and, ba- and then, spoiler alert, I'm, I don't care, I'm going to spoil it. He gets, she gets AIDS from him. Because that's what women who cheat deserve, right, Tyler Perry? Apparently so. You know, well, especially when you go with the devil. Because <laughs> that was also another thing in that movie where... It was emphasized that the woman, uh, her mother, like, sees this uh, new, fresh guy who's all, like, slick and rich. It's like, you're the devil! It's pretty amazing. So So now we come to this movie, and um, let me try to... I don't know how you sum up the plot. Where do you start with this? We should mention, consider this... A potentially spoiler-filled review from the outset. Yes, yes. We, we talked about this before we got on mic. Uh, sometimes, uh, no, not sometimes, oftentimes when we do a review of a movie, we'll try to put a kind of spoiler warning midway through a review. That's not going to fly this time. We just got to <laughs> get right into it and talk about the movie as a whole from the beginning. Yeah, so... So if you're really really somehow anxious or interested in seeing this movie with completely fresh eyes then stop listening to this review if you don't if you don't care listen on because oh we we have a lot to talk about you said before we got on mic too you could write a dissertation about this movie. i could i could write a book about this movie i have so much to say i have so much commentary before we get into talking about it if you're about to turn it off because you want to avoid spoilers go see this movie it's a hilarious viewing experience you will not be disappointed just don't expect it to be good because... no 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 in fact uh, if you expect it to be th- anything less than hot garbage, then you will be sorely mistaken. <laughs> because that's what this movie is. This movie is a pile of dog shit. But it's so fun to watch in its terribleness. Alright, all right. so for those who are wondering what this movie is about, I mean, you could check out the trailer, but I frankly think the trailer was a little bit deceptive. Very deceptive. Yeah, like this, like the character in this movie. No, because <laughs> um, from the trailer, it looks like Traji P. Henson has been cheated on by her man and is going to get back at him some way, somehow. It's in the title of the movie. And, uh, you know, and you think seeing the trailer, okay, so this is another kind of lifetime-y woman getting justice for being wronged by the trash man in her life and no the movie is way bigger than that oh there's a certain ambition to this movie (laughs) we'll talk about how that ambition does or does not take off and become the hindenburg but (laughs) all right so uh taraji b henson plays um melinda thank you or occasionally called mel and uh she is recounting the kind of framing device of the movie, which Temptation did this as well, where a character is looking back at a moment in their life. Um, in Temptation, we were meant we were meant to not know if it was the main character 
until the end. Spoiler, it was. Um, <laughs> in this case, it's pretty clear from the outset. Melinda is, like, the very first thing we see, actually, she's in court. And she gets some type of order against her. And then the next scene, which, the one bit of the movie that felt like, huh, are you doing some camera work here for a moment, Tyler Perry? <laughs> she's sitting on this chair talking to a therapist who's off camera and kind of describing about how mad she is. And the camera just kind of pushes in on her face really slowly. For a second, I was like, oh, oh, hmm. Tyler Perry, are you trying to be cinematic? What's going on here? Um, no. So she's recounting the story of how she met the man in her life, uh, whose uh, name is Robert. Um, and his he's played by the an actor. Well, there are a couple different actors, because we should mention that for some reason they decided, because Traji P. Henson and the adult guy who plays Robert are kind of in their late 30s or around 40 that they shouldn't play them as college kids, which is fine. Yeah. The actors who got them to, to play them don't look anything like them, though. No. But we see their relationship, how they meet, in a moment of hilarity where oh they meet in the rain. Uh, they smash into each other because they're running to get somewhere. Um, Instead of a meet cute, it's a meet bitchy because... Yeah, let's talk about that to start Yeah, with. they run into each other. And it's pouring rain, and young Melinda's notes fall into the rain. And she starts screaming at young Robert. She starts hitting him in the rain. She's screaming at him and hitting him. And he decides, I'm I in want love. Some, I want some of that. I gotta get that piece so he, he goes to her dorm room to give her back some of her soggy notes where she proceeds to be incredibly rude to him again yeah like it's it's funny because when the door opens it's her roommate and her roommate is the one that has the googly eyes and it's like oh my god this hot man is in front of me and and he's like uh can i see melinda and it's like sure uh, sure. And then she comes up and she's like, what do you want? <laughs> and, but eventually he works his charms on her, I guess. And they start to have a relationship. And, uh, and then though it turns out, so, and they get so close that they, uh, I forget if they move in. They're, they're in college, basically, in these flashbacks. Yeah. So all these flashbacks take place when they're in college. And... Oh, one thing I want to draw attention to now, because we're going to come back to it later. This is also a right, like, relationship from different sides of the tracks. Because yeah, well Melinda is portrayed as someone who comes from wealth. Although, we're going to get oh, into that. No! <laughs> but no! Oh, my head hurts already. We we are told early in the movie that Melinda comes from wealth and Robert comes from poverty. Yeah. However, as we're going to discuss in great detail, it has been such a long time since Tyler Perry has interacted with money like a normal human being. He's completely forgotten how it works. This The movie Birdemic has a better idea of how money works in this. Yeah. It's obvious that Tyler Perry has been so rich for so long he completely fails to understand money. What kind of money? 
But <laughs> the initial setup is that Melinda comes from wealth and privilege and Robert comes from poverty. It doesn't seem like she comes from that much wealth, oh. though. It's like, I mean, her family seems to... They have a middle-class upbringing, maybe upper-middle class at best, and I think that the backdrop, from what I remember, is that her mother dies and leaves her, like, something like 250 grand. 350. Oh, 350. And through one event that leads to another, Robert kind of sucks all the money out that she had as, like, this Yeah, in this alternate universe, by the way... A woman with three children leaves all her money and worldly possessions to one yeah, of those three wait, children. Wait, yeah, so that was the thing I didn't quite get. Like, cause she that's something Taraji P. Henson mentions in the narration that and we gotta talk about the narration a little bit. Um God, that's that's a prize. Um yeah, because she has her character, Melinda has like a few, a couple of siblings. They don't get anything. And no one ever addresses this in the movie. Like, no one ever addresses, if there are three children, why does Melinda have exclusive rights to the house? And why does Melinda inherit the life insurance policy, which she doesn't have to share with anyone else? She, she inherits this $350,000 life insurance policy. I should mention, the reason why I assumed her family was wealthy and not just middle class was, first of all, this house is, like, huge. It's a really big house. I don't know if it seemed that big. It seemed like a regular house. It looked really big from the exterior shots to me. And also... I don't know about that. I think now you're... That's getting a little nitpicking. <laughs> also, there's a brief reference to them living in a hoity-toity neighborhood. Because mm. when... They ask young Melinda where Robert's from, yes. and he says the name of his town. They're like, they actually say verbatim, oh, so you're on the other side of the tracks. Well, of course they do, because it's a fucking Tyler Perry movie, and he th doesn't know anything except cliches. And when they ask him, um, when they first meet him, they ask him, what does he do? And they flat out ask him, what do you do for money? Where's your money? Yeah. What do you do? Well, well, the thing about Robert is he holds a lot back at first, which, of course, we also find out because Taraji P. Henson's character is leading us into think knowing she's being conned as a young person. She's being conned by this guy, Robert, to fall in love with him um, and to, uh, you know, to fall for him, even though it's after she discovers, oh, wait, this Robert's not getting back to me. When I call him up, he has a weird voice responding to my calls. Like I find out in his trailer, uh, he's been screwing this other girl. And oh, we, I'll get back to that scene because that's <laughs> its own own can of worms. But suffice to say, ultimately they make up um, after he does a lot of pleading and begging. Um, and he reveals to her that he's actually a felon like he went to jail when he was 15 for two years but he was tried as a uh as as an adult so now he can't get really any jobs which he doesn't tell her until after they're married yeah they finally get married even the marriage scene we could talk about oh about so how there's terrible continuity and the number of extras <laughs> changes 
<laughs> what happened? Were they filming a bit of the scene when the actors were out at lunch and then they <laughs> decided to call them back in to film the reverse? Oh, and Taraji P. Henson's voiceover <clears throat> begged you to pay attention to the continuity <clears throat> problem because she's walking down the aisle. Yeah. And she mentions how none of her family are there. And it doesn't look that way. Like, the way that this works, film, filming speak, Cameron's tracking along down the aisle, kind of looking across at the empty seats. So we have Melinda's point of view. Now, we're, you know, we're just showing Melinda. There's barely anybody that we see in here. Then cut to when she's up at the main part of where she's supposed to... She's at the altar. She's at the... Uh, this movie made me stupid. Uh, <laughs> she's up at the altar, and then we see behind her, like, ten people. Yeah, so it's abundantly <laughs> clear that there's exactly one person in the <laughs> in the aisles. Okay, so now we got that out of the way, the wedding scene. So, all right, so Robert can't work because he can't, you know, if he puts down, fel I'm a felon, he can't get work because that's... Unfortunately, how our country works. That could be its own other story. But he, though, has a dream. He has, like, <laughs> this big dream that he's going to make this special battery. Now, we don't know exactly what this battery is supposed to power, I don't think. Does, do, do we even find that out? We find out it's rechargeable. And at one point, he uses it to power, and I quote, the entire house. Well, of course that that but and that doesn't work out, but so it's the uh, battery. We never, you know what the thing is in the movie, we never see the battery actually work. Do yeah, we we never see it work. The one time he's showing off the battery, it's kind of like it's char it's it's giving charge to the entire house. Then it suddenly shorts and the entire house loses power. Yeah, so we the only time we see the battery in action, it's. Powering the electricity in the house. Badly. It, here's a good idea, filmmakers. Uh, Tyler Perry, I'm looking at you. If you want to try to get the audience on your side about the, your character's dream, maybe show your characters achieving their dream. Don't just tell us, like, oh, your research is so great. We're going to bring you on. Oh, oh, that's a whole other thing. About <laughs> oh, oh, man. The whole midsection of this movie is so fucking bad. I know. Oh my god. Oh <laughs> uh, well, all right, we should say that. All right, all of a sudden, from one scene to the next, um, we're led to believe that Robert and Melinda are married together for years. Eighteen years. Eighteen years. And like from one shot to the next, all of a sudden the college age uh, actors turn into Taraji P. Henson, and the actor who plays Robert is named. Lyric Bent. Okay. I, I guess that's a name. Um, <laughs> Lyric with a K, with a Q, by the way. He's in a couple of Saw movies. Oh my God, he was in that movie Pay the Ghost. <laughs> Pay the Ghost. <laughs> that's a forgotten Nicolas Cage movie, and for good reason. Um, so basically, the movie is charting how, um, you know, Robert is is. Um, I guess a male gold digger, you could say. Oh, yeah. Like, he's basically, a, like, one of these men who you sometimes hear about who are just sapping their woman dry. 
He's totally a gold digger. Yeah, he's a male gold digger. He's a, this guy who, I don't know if that's a wrong term to say, because that's, maybe that's almost like saying, like, uh, like white trash or something. But, all right. Point is, he's making Melinda suffer, because he has this whole dream, and somehow depletes, like, hundreds of thousands off her, so he can get, you know, and it, ultimately, again, we don't really see him doing much work on the battery itself. We just see him being a stalkery creep at this one company. Yeah. This one company he's trying to pitch his battery to. For 20 years. For 20 years. And it also takes them 20 years (laughs) to finally tell them, no, you're banned from coming to our place. So, yeah, for 20 years, he writes... He writes to this one company every week. I, I forget their name, but it was it's like Starbucks. Prescott something. Prescott something. Prescott and Howard, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. You, you... This movie is close <laughs> to my heart. <laughs> See, <coughs> this is the kind of trash that I just adore. And don't get me wrong. This movie is awful. If, 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 <laughs> I, if I was grading this film, it... I, you know what? Before we get on to the rest of the plot, I will say one good thing about it, genuinely. I think Taraji P. Henson is really fun in this movie. Oh, yeah. She I think she, goes she's, for it. Yeah, she's genuinely... She's giving, like, a B-plus performance in an F-grade movie. <laughs> like, it, when you, if you ever follow me on Letterboxd, you'll see that I give this movie, like, a star and a half. One of those stars is for Taraji P. Henson. Yeah, so... But anyway, her creepy husband calls Prescott and Howard regularly for 20 years. He writes them regularly for 20 years. He shows up in front in front of the building regularly for 20 years. I, well, I mean, and that takes its own gigantic mountain of disbelief that he wouldn't be, you know, have a restraining order there after what after a couple of years huh. it, it but then of course Tyler Perry has to try to make the convenience of the story fit even better so the girl that he cheated with the one who was in the trailer with him huh. uh when uh Melinda found out she is now like the vice president or something at this company at Prescott yeah. so now um Robert tries once again because hey this girl's here and because she watches a bunch of videos that he recorded of himself pitching his project over the years which by the way is funny itself because (laughs) we see his spirit like gradually (laughs) (laughs) decrease like at first he's like hey i'm robert and i'm i have this great new battery oh what was the name of the battery by the way well his last name is gail that's the character's last name. Are, are you ready for this? I, I, I want you, everyone, to have their hand ready, just like so far, like maybe like, you know, <laughs> a several feet away from their face. I want you to be ready to give yourself the biggest face palm in your lives. What's the name of the company? Gale Force Wind. <laughs> oh, oh my God! All right, but I'll let that slide. All right, it's it's a pun. It's bad, but whatever. You know you love puns. All right. So let's talk about this chick, though. Like, and I think, is this, is her name Sarah? No, Diana is. Diana, sorry. The other woman. Oh, okay. Diana now is, again, she's at this company 
and because she rewatches Robert's pitch videos, she decides on a dime, oh, I was looking through your research. It's brilliant. You got to come here today. Now. Yeah. So the moral of this story is that you pitch yourself to one company <laughs> and only one company because you literally never speak as if to another company. As if there's no other companies in the United States of America. That might be interested in pun batteries. There's not a, How about Shark Tank? Did you ever <laughs> think of that? There's this whole TV show industry where you pitch ideas that get sold. No, you have to focus on this one company. Like... Oh, he is eventually told what after... Is he, what is he, Rupert Pupkin? <laughs> I'm going to, like, keep pitching myself so that Jerry Lewis hires me and only Jerry Lewis. I know, it's a totally different movie. He but. is told after 20 years, you're not allowed to contact the company anymore. But that, but or that's get what, arrested. But that's what makes it crazy. Because he's finally told after 20 years, you can't contact us, you can't come to us anymore. A week later... We love your pitch. You gotta come in today. Oh my god. Can we use this to talk about his other job and how this movie understands the finances? All right. Of oh, Money's okay. Family? Well, well, it takes a little more unpacking to do. Again, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack with fucking Tyler Perry's. So, um, so obviously Melinda's family is really concerned because this guy Robert is leeching off her, you know, her Melinda to the point where. Melinda had a, a paid-off house. She's living in her the house she grew up in, but she has to get another mortgage uh, because, again, Robert needs his... Uh, battery money. Yeah. <laughs> battery and he, money. he needs to make his energy work. Um, so, in a scene where they're kind of... Like, the, the sisters and, I guess, their boyfriends or whatever... Their husbands. Their husbands are comically positioned just so i know it sounds like a small thing but if you watch that scene where they all come into the house each of them is positioned exactly <laughs> so that the two are in front and then the other two are filling up the spaces in between and uh, it was like a group photo um they tell him like robert you, you can't keep doing this you're they're gonna foreclose on the house you know you're you're, you're ruining melinda what, what you know and then the, the 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 husbands tell Robert, okay, we for our company that we work with, we advance some money on deliveries, so you can come work for us now, as a delivery driver. But you better not mess it up, otherwise we're gonna lose this big company. I didn't understand that at all. Oh, it made no sense. Here's here's how Tyler Perry thinks jobs work. <laughs> Tyler Perry understands jobs the way God's Not Dead understands college. <laughs> so, Melinda's sisters and their husbands, who, again, in the beginning of the movie, her sisters are quite snobbish. Yeah. They're delivery people. So, you know, not exactly... Well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're snobbish. You know, with a little quick... With a little rewrite, just even like a scene or two... Tyler Perry could have had a good motivation. He could have had a thing where, obviously, you would have had to buy into some bullshit, but, you know, what if, say, like, the mother loved Melinda just so much, she gave it all to her. Like, it was almost mm -hmm. like a reverse Cinderella thing, where the other two sisters were such bitches that they didn't get anything, 
So that gives them motivation to be so bitchy. But we never see that. They're just, yeah, they're just snobs. But anyway, so the weird thing is they are all, the husbands and the sisters all work for this delivery company. Yes. Straight to you delivery. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like a name out of the Ninja Turtles cartoon. They are told that if Robert works for the delivery company for three months, their boss will advance him enough money to save the house. Because that's how it works. Yes. That's how having a job works. If you walked into your delivery person job and said, advance me hundreds of thousands of dollars for three months of work, your boss would definitely say, sure. Yeah. Especially when Robert is a felon with no job history in his late 30s. And here's how Tyler Perry, this genius, decides to try to... (laughs) You know, just like a turducken, like, jam the plot together where it does not go. Just, like, cram it beyond reason. So, there's, in one day, Robert has to... We Oh, I should mention uh, that... What, what else? The reason we're so incredulous about this is we have intimate personal knowledge of the economics of being a delivery... Of being, like, a delivery person. Oh, you mean me? Yes, because oh. Jack was a delivery person. So this is an area of the economy well, that we know well. Well, no, to be fair, I, I worked, like, I was a delivery person at a diner. So that's not, it seemed like this was a bigger company. But still, like, you would have, like, were those, you would have to be, like, the sons of the owners at this delivery company yeah. to get that kind of deal. Like, how do you beg for that much money? Oh, yeah. Let's let's try to put this aside. And for we a know that the <laughs> sisters and the brothers are actually the people who go out and do the deliveries. Like we see them in their delivery outfits, and we see them doing the grunt work of doing the delivering. So it's not like they're bigwigs in the company. No, no, they're not. And anyway, they're not bigwigs, but they magically get that money and. Oh, yes, yes, um, here we go to so, right. <laughs> Now, you mentioned before... Now, I mentioned before that all of a sudden Prescott tells Robert, okay, we finally looked at your... And it, specifically this one woman, Diane. she Because she's the one, I think, really fighting for Robert. She tells him, all right, I looked at your research. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. You're actually... You know, shouldn't say these words, but like, you're actually Stephen Hawking, aren't you? And <laughs> you need to come in today this one time and present to the people he finds this out while he's also that day on a delivery for the biggest account for this delivery company a very important fish delivery oh was it fish it was a fish delivery i think i might have missed that part i might have gotten so he absolutely has to deliver these crates of fish by 11 a.m. Otherwise, the entire economic health of the business, um, the entire, like, vo- the... Uh, yeah, well, anyway, so the point is... He has I, to deliver everything. Er, fish. Everything will be screwed up for this company if he doesn't make this delivery. And it just so happens the delivery is a half hour before he has to present to Prescott. And so in this one day... Everything just completely falls apart because uh, because he 
first he he then decides okay instead of doing this delivery i'm gonna go and uh go to um now i would i might have been out i left the theater for a second to get a drink oh yeah you were gone let me so so did they was that when diane left her purse in in there okay in the truck here's i'm sorry i'm not communicating this it's okay um i understand you needed to hydrate yourself um so here's what happens we never find out when Diana left her wallet in Robert's trunk. Like, we never see that. What you missed was he has to drive back to his house to pick up the battery. Yeah. Because he threw it out. He put it in with the trash. Mm. He was finally giving up his battery dream. And so he put his giant you battery. You might say he was battered <laughs> by his dream. So he put his battery to the curb and he had to go pick up his battery from the curb. And of course, he has to like wrestle it out of the hands of the garbage man. Oh my God. Why did I miss that? Oh, that sounds amazing. So. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Fuck this movie. All right. So so. then he's in the house. He's about to leave. Wasn't I, wasn't also like. Melinda's sister's there in that moment. This is all after the meeting. What happens is he goes to his house, picks up the battery from the trash, does the meeting. But wasn't Melinda there, though, as he was leaving the house? Yeah, and she's flipping out at him because she discovers Diana's wallet was in Robert's truck. Let me ask you, do you think that they should have better established that her wallet was in his truck? Well, what happened is the sisters are checking Robert's truck and they find Diana's wallet. And then the sisters run back to the house to tell Melinda, your man's been stepping out again. And and Tyler Perry is pretty clear, though, that this time Robert isn't screwing Diana. Yeah. Unlike before. So Melinda has a total flip out on the lawn when he's come back. Oh, and that's amazing. To retrieve his battery from the trash. Mm Mm-hmm. But he leaves her to go to his meeting. He's once-in-a-lifetime meeting that happened at the exact moment he had to make this special fish delivery. Oh, and here's 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 another, and here's a really rich point. This is where Robert decides to get all, like, fucking Ray Charles or something. <laughs> he, he tells, he's given a deal, like a, one of these deals that sounds, again, it's too good to be true because, again, money, who knows how that works. Um, it's an $800,000 check. Just give us this battery in your research and we'll take it from here. And Robert's like, I, 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 I can't do that. I, I, I need my copyrights. I need my patents. I, I'm going to license it to you and it'll make billions. And they're like, no, that's not how this works. I mean, you got to take the deal as it is now. And he's like, no, I can't do that. And he walks out. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. This movie. Oh and then he comes back home and Melinda's there with her sisters and their husbands and she's done. She might as well be Medusa. <laughs> Have like snakes coming out of her hair at that because point. Because she's totally convinced that Robert has cheated on her again and And turning down eight hundred thousand dollars yeah. after like her house is gonna be foreclosed on doesn't help things. And because he missed the fish delivery that source of money is gone, and they lose the client. And it also damages the company right, yeah. in a big way. Um, and so finally she puts her foot down. After all this time, 
finally, this is the moment where she says, "Pack your shit, get out. We're get. I'm going. I want a divorce." Yeah. And I know this isn't the way to usually review a movie, just going through the plot, but you can't help it. You have to kind of explain every bad decision that's going on in the story. And the story. problem is, we've already brushed over like ten things I want to talk about. Well, well, I'm sure we'll get back to things, but. Um, now, where the movie takes its gigantic turn to me, like, it, so what happens, though, is that Robert then decides, like, at first he's kind of just on his own in some worker's shack or I something. Think he, I think it's supposed to be a homeless shelter. Oh, okay, that's why his phone gets stolen. Okay, that, So, that he's a dishwasher in a homeless shelter. Yeah, well, not, no, not in the, not in the shelter. Oh, yeah, he's, sorry. He happens to be a dishwasher in the restaurant that Melinda goes to on a date with her new guy that she gets set up with but doesn't really want to date. Because... Well, it's her ex-boyfriend from... Devin is her ex-boyfriend from pre-college. Oh, okay. I missed that part. I thought that they like the sisters just set her up with him because... No, they used date. to go out. Because remember, we meet Devin in the funeral scene in the beginning of the movie. Oh, God, the funeral scene. Oh. Um, yeah, so he happens to be working as a dishwasher at the same restaurant she's at, because we need a moment with the narration. Oh, God, the narration. <laughs> the <laughs> narration. to kill rising. <laughs> oh, but anyway, now all of a sudden, though, he, um, Diane reaches out to Robert again, or Robert, no, Robert reaches out to Diane and tells her what happened. She invites him into her place, and magically is able to, without Robert going back to Prescott, gets a deal for him for, are, are you ready? Are you sitting down, everyone? You need to be sitting down. $75 million. Yes. So, so that now, not only does he get even more money, he gets to hold on to his copyrights. He gets, you know. Because this is how it works. This is how business transactions work. You're offered $800,000. You turn it down. You engage in zero additional negotiations. And then three months later, you get handed a check for $75 million. Yeah, that's how this works. Yeah, like, and again, I don't know what the fuck this battery does. I don't care if it's a rechargeable thing it's ridiculous you gotta like give me something else tyler perry that like i know that this isn't the focal point of your movie it's a it's a relationship drama but if i can't believe what the pro what the thing is that this person's dream is about then yeah. why, what the fuck am well, i watching your movie this is supposed to be the defining passion of robert's life and he's New girlfriend Diana negotiates for him off screen to get him all his money. Why does she even go for him? Like, yeah. uh, for all the crazy ass writing, which we'll get into in a little bit regarding Melinda, we don't, she really underwrites her. Yeah, Diana. Like, all of a sudden, on a dime, he she magically, I guess, through watching these videos of him pitching and being like a sad puppy face. Decides, oh, you know what? This guy yeah. who was restraining ordered away from the building because he was writing for 20 years like a fucking stalker. Oh, now we're just going to suddenly change our minds and bring yeah. you into the company. This guy who is pushing 40 
has never had a respectable job and is a former felon. Tommy Wiseau had a better <laughs> grasp of banking in the room. Oh, another thing I love in this movie is Melinda is supposed to be the poor sister, yet she has the white collar office job and her sisters are delivery people. Yeah. Yeah, now that you mention, like, and I know she starts as, like, an office assistant or something, but, oh my god. So, anyway, we have to unpack the rest of this story, though. Here's where we get into some major spoilers. So, Robert signs the divorce agreement, but this is in that mid-stage between when he turned down the 800 grand and when he gets, like, that 75 million. Exactly. So, obviously... Um, this is actually when Melinda's in the p- position of power. And she just says, you get the car and the clothes. That's it. So then, Robert, after he gets all this money, kind of comes to Melinda. And, you know, very, you know, kind of in a way that I guess the audience might find kind of generous or whatever. He gives her $10 million, plus the keys back to the house, which he somehow magically bought from whoever bought the house after after it was foreclosed. Yeah. And it's here that Melinda goes fucking nuts. Yeah, she goes crazy because she finally leaves this scrub after he sucks her dry for 20 years. And then within, I don't know, the time period's a little indistinct, but within about a month to two months of them finalizing their divorce. And Robert, getting, se- and Robert getting closer to Diane. Too. Yeah. He makes $75 million. See, I think that it's... They try to make a point in the movie saying, it's not about the money. It's not about the money. You know, the fact that she's all... Melinda is now a multi-millionaire. Yeah. No, it's more about, oh, oh, this guy's now with her. He's with Diana. Oh, he's with the woman that... You know, cheat on with me, cheat on me back in college. Oh, can we talk about this scene now, the RV scene? Because I think... <laughs> yeah, let's go back now. Let's rewind the clock back. <laughs> to a, a, place a ways. Melinda's freak out in context, we have to understand how she responded when she caught young Robert cheating with young Diana. Now, this was, I have to say, this was pretty awesome. This was an amazing scene. Like, it, legitimately so. Like, if, obviously, the filmmaking could have been better, but, oh, God, but there's so much else to pe- unpack following this. But anyway, <clears throat> Melinda finds, she's in, she she thinks, oh, Robert's not getting back to me. This is weird. Maybe I'm just going to go buy his RV, see what's going on. You know, what, what, you know, she doesn't go up to the RV and, like, knock on the door or anything like any sane person would do. She's just kind of sitting there waiting for something to happen. And then out of the corner of her eye, in one moment, she sees, you know, the hand up on the window. Uh. Oh, my God. Cheating on me. Drives her truck into the RV. And after hitting it twice, knocks it over on its side. She tips the RV over driving into it. <laughs> it's hilarious. And then uh, the two people, in, you know, Robert and Diane get out. Uh, and they're fine. And, you know, Melinda's freaking out and having a big thing. Then Melinda passes out with a nose, and her nose starts bleeding. Her nose—that's how we know. Yeah, nose starts bleeding. All of a sudden, bam, she's out. Narration tells us at the hospital, I lost all my ovaries and had to get a hysterectomy. Yeah, even though technically. 
basically, removal of the ovaries is not even called a hysterectomy. Your uterus and your ovaries are not the same organ. I have a theory about this uh, whole twist, though, Corey. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. I actually do have a theory about this. I think originally in the script, Tyler Perry didn't have that at all. He uh. didn't have anything like that. He just had, like, a th- like Melinda finds out that Robert's cheating, freaks out, maybe she passes out, and then cut to him trying to apologize and she accepts it. Somebody, at, like, maybe a producer, who knows, and maybe it was very delicate because, you know, <laughs> how can you tell Tyler Perry to do something? But I have a feeling that somebody must have given him a note. Maybe it was even the studio. And they said, well, it's not... Well, first of all, shouldn't there be kind of a bigger stake here involving Melinda and why Robert, you know, tries to apologize to her and becomes more vulnerable? Or Melinda is more vulnerable to accept his apology. Also, you know, how are we supposed to believe in their marriage that they never have any kids or try to have kids? Because sometimes in broken relationships you have a kid to try to save the marriage uh they don't do that so somebody had to t- try to tell tyler perry this so he thought okay i'm gonna give you a reason <laughs> 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 and he came up with this poor shit it's a very special type of injury where you get a nosebleed ruptured ovaries and not a scratch on you besides. and also how she was driving the car, and it's not like she was really damaged much aside from that. Like, if anything, the other people would have been damaged. Yeah. They fell over in a toppled RV. Yeah. So the people in the RV that she drives into are fine. Yeah. She has basically movie disease. <laughs> this is like movie disease on crack. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's... It's all done as this ridiculous, ridiculous excuse to try to, A, obviously, again, add a moment of vulnerability, but also to excuse away, oh, I can never have children, so we don't have to worry about that in the plot. She says specifically her ovaries ruptured from hitting the steering wheel too hard. Oh, my God. Yeah, so they actually oh make it worse. They oh, try to give a specific oh. reason. Oh. So she oh, hits her ste- she hits the steering wheel too hard. And so she has a bloody nose and ruptured ovaries. Two places that are nowhere near a steering wheel. Does Tyler Perry not know? Does he think your ovaries are like in your chest? <laughs> not only does he not know how money works, he doesn't know how ovaries work. Here's yeah. an idea, Tyler Perry. Type into Google, how do your ovaries rupture? Uh, what do you mean, like all of them? What? <laughs> well, the other thing is, too, I looked up Tyler Perry on Wikipedia when we were on our way home. All right. He is fathered children so this really has he recently it's only recently oh okay because i thought he was i thought he was a closeted gay man i thought he was one of those swinging bachelors i thought he was a closeted gay man i thought i read that somewhere years ago but anyway he has a girlfriend and he's recently fathered children so this level of biological idiocy is not acceptable tyler perry's just overall an idiot he (laughs) And man, like what he does, I almost can picture Tyler Perry writing this script, 
thinking he's like God's gift to <laughs> filmmaking. Like, oh, I just wrote this brilliant scene. Oh, I just wrote this. And this lead this has to lead us into talking about the narration. Oh yeah. This might be some of the worst, if not the worst, narration I've ever oh, heard in a so major corny. release. It's no, it oh god. And God bless her. Taraji P. Henson really does try to sell it. Oh, yeah. Because she's the one, again, she's narrating three quarters of this movie and is super duper dramatic. It's 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 the kind of toxic combination of narration that's telling us way too much information that we could clearly see. <laughs> I knew we were in trouble from the beginning because she said, I was in college and I was running and we crashed into each other. Sees crash into each other. <laughs> Here's an idea. Cut that line out. <laughs> Let's just see them run into each other. Problem solved. <laughs> no, she doesn't do that. Um, and it also, did, did the narration continue after she's done with the therapist, too? I feel like it did. I feel like it did, too. I'm not 100% sure. I, but I, I feel again, like it I might did. have, you know, acrimony disease. Oh, <laughs> oh, we got to talk about something else now. Oh, yeah. Definitions of words. So Tyler Perry <laughs> obviously has a word of the day calendar that he's very fond of. He, at first, I thought he was trying to pull like you know, Pulp Fiction did this, uh, you know, years ago. Like Pulp, you know, it, it, at the very beginning of Pulp Fiction, for those of you who might remember, they put the definition of what pulp means because maybe they thought, well, some of our audience out there might not know what Pulp Fiction means. Like they don't know. Yeah how pulp it has a has a lineage back to like paperback books and stuff like that that worked there it was also you know that he did it once and never did it again um but no every multiple times in this movie he'll put up a word on the screen in terribly fonted text i know that's a nitpick I thought the font of that, of the text, was also pretty shitty and, like, cheap-looking. Yeah. So he starts by defining acrimony, but then he defines random other words. What were some the of the words? Did you take notes of that? Sunder was one. Inexorable was one. There was some kind of D word, too. Were they yeah, the devastated? Date? No, it was something like that. Something like, yeah, some kind of... Word. And you know what's weird? He didn't do it throughout the movie. He, But then, like, in the last third, he started to go definition crazy. Maybe it was to do with her, like, the Melinda character, though. Like, And now to get back to her. So in the last third of this movie, again, Melinda just goes completely crazy over... Yeah. And it's most... You know, we're led to try to believe that, you know, it doesn't have to do with oh, I could have got more money out of the divorce. I'm pissed off about that. No, she is just completely losing her mind that Robert and Diane are now together as a couple. Yeah, she's been usurped. She's been usurped. And, you know, in her head, it's, you know, I helped him do all that. I did. You know, and... Even though she left him. She left him. And granted, it is kind of crappy timing, but... I will you got say, you got ten million dollars out of it in this money situation that makes no sense. The only thing I'm gonna say in defense of this movie, this is the only thing I'm gonna say about this movie that is not awful. They had to do something to move the plot into. Well, gear. no, I will say, 
I can understand how someone would be very upset about losing this relationship, even if she initiated the divorce. I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that you could initiate a divorce against someone and then have buyer's remorse but, afterwards. But it's just, it's so, but the problem is, though, you know, to me, it made... Even even in the realm of the, of the Tyler Perry verse, it, made, <laughs> it at least made some sense how mad she gets when he when she finds that he cheated on her in college. But we never see any of that anger at all throughout the movie. She's just kind of just accepting and you know being very passive and just accepting everything. And Tyler Perry just expect expects us to immediately assume. Oh, when she's now out of the relationship and completely slighted. No, this is when she goes just completely into oh. lifetime movie stalker mode. And she and goes in a way, nuts. she's no better than he was with the company. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like this movie is filled with horrible people. Yeah. Well, and we, you know, and we don't dis we're we're meant to like Melinda. Here's Here's what I here's what I think Tyler Perry wants us to get out of the movie. I think we're supposed to sympathize with her initially, but then we're supposed to think like, oh, if only she'd stood by her man even longer, none of this would have happened. So the moral of the story seems to be if your husband is a lazy shiftless leech for 20 years you gotta just wait till 21 yeah <laughs> <laughs> wait until year 21 well no but well no the way that he wrote this though is supposed to be that like rob i don't know i got the sense that robert might have not gotten that deal if he hadn't moved in with Diane and she hadn't taken well, yeah, extra Yeah, well, she did all him. the work of negotiating it. Again, off screen. Diane is the one who somehow turns an $800,000 deal into a $75 million deal. Yeah, that's that's some crazy... That's the kind of thing that, you know, a halfway competent director it, might want to show. This is like... This is... Yeah, again, maybe the, though this is about how Tyler Perry really lucked into the career he has and he just... <laughs> He doesn't know how it works. He just... Diane is maybe like an analogy for like his agent. (laughs) (laughs) Who takes him off of like the Chitlin theater circuit and takes him into like conglomerate stuff. Now I have to say, I have heard that phrase before, but I have no idea what the quote Chitlin theater circuit actually is. That might have been borderline racist. And I apologize. No, it's, it's like, it was small. It's meant to kind of, Chitlin Circuit was back in like more so like musician days, like uh. blues musicians and certain rock musicians would go on what's called the Chitlin Circuit. It's mostly black themed like uh, theaters and yeah, halls. I've heard that phrase before used to talk about the rise of Tyler Perry's career, but I have no idea what that phrase means. It's basically so. well, he got started doing plays uh. that were super low rent and um. A lot of the Medea movies started as plays. Like, he had basically adapted plays. That's why so many of his movies are, like, staticky and, you know, filled with, you know, people talking, but really talking. I feel a little bad making so much fun of Tyler Perry personality-wise, though, because he is ha- he had a really, really, really rough upbringing. No, like, no, I, really I, I, I know you told me about that. So, look, 
I don't want to disparage him as far but as... But he's so... He's um, such a hack. He's so untalented. He's, he's the... he's. But here's the problem. He's a combination of hack and idiot. And I remember hearing... I've heard over the years repeatedly uh, for, like, Corey Coleman on Double Toasted has talked about how, you know, I don't really like his movies, but I think he's a really great businessman. I don't even know if that's... I, I, don't, I don't really like him as a businessman either. Because that's like saying Donald Trump is a good businessman. <laughs> that's like saying, oh, I'm going to give you this this thing that you're going to really love. It's so amazing and terrific. And then you just realize, no, this is actually really chintzy and very low quality. That's a little bit of what... Like, a Tyler Perry movie is like getting a Trump steak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and again, this movie... It obviously, if you're just looking for crazy filmmaking and bad decisions, obviously this gives you that. But I felt bad for like Taraji P. Henson in this. Something we talked about also when we were on the ride home. You asked me if I thought this or Proud Mary was a worse movie. Because uh, Proud Mary, you might have already forgotten about that now. Pr- Proud Mary came out in January. And from the trailers, it almost looked like, oh, they're, they're going to make Traji P. Henson into this badass, uh, ass-kicking star, like a new yeah. Pam Greer or something like that. No, it was not. It was just a very shoddily made action movie. Now, the thing is, they're, they're, these movies are bad in slightly different ways. Proud Mary is bad in just a more generic genre movie full of cliches kind of thing. Acrimony is full of cliches, but they're also done in such a... I don't know how to describe them way that it makes it a unique experience. Now that yeah. said, it, it, it's still a type of thing where if you're watching this and expecting something that's legitimately good, you will you, not only will you be disappointed, you might walk out angry or even walk out before the movie ends. You might walk out feeling acrimony towards Tyler Perry if you expect it to be a good movie. Well, where's your drum kit? I think somebody needs to do a that yeah, <laughs> um yeah the last act of this movie though is where all the here's the thing that i have a problem with too in this movie we've watched the show crazy ex-girlfriend yes and it's a terrific show if you haven't checked it out we love crazy ex-girlfriend it's it's a wonderful show on on cw i that's love you a, rachel bloom that's also a show that deals with somebody who has borderline personality disorder yeah. and that's what Melinda gets ultimately diagnosed with by this therapist after she's told this long, long story. This is like the super shitty version of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. This is made by someone who doesn't really care so much about the characters. He's more interested in getting certain effects out of the audience. That's what, I guess, when we call Tyler Perry a hack, that's kind of what I'm referring to, is that... He doesn't care so much about giving us human beings as they are in the world. <laughs> He's giving us these types that, I, to me, it just... I could get uh, Melinda getting angry about how, oh, this woman just suddenly comes in and is taking all my stuff. But the degree that they take Taraji P. Henson in is just madness. She needed even more dancing to chill her out. Oh, yeah. So, in order for us to get the sense of, oh, we know that she's getting mad now, Trazzy P. Henson 
is like kind of angry dancing alone in her house <laughs> surrounded by like candles and like red like drapes i guess yeah so there's the light <laughs> whatever light is on her is tinted red she is like a red drape over her All lamp right. or something and yeah the way that that scene plays out oh man i i was laughing so hard into myself like have you become like Stevie Nicks or something. <laughs> now, I know that you said that you could talk for hours and hours. What are some other things you want to bring up about this movie? Well, we <laughs> haven't talked about the glorious conclusion on the yacht. Oh. <laughs> How did she get on that yacht? Uh, so basically, Ro Robert and Diane are on the uh, on his boat. They get married on the yacht. So they get married. They get married on the yacht. Also... They mention in literally one line of dialogue that Diana is pregnant, which is another thing oh, that really sets Christ. off Melinda because Diana will have the babies that she can't because of her conveniently ruptured ovaries. And yeah, but but uh, so we should also mention that because um, because Melinda does become this stalkery woman, she gets a restraining order against her, and her family intervenes to the point where. They've blocked her car in and are are stationed at the front and back doors uh. so she can't get out. She manages to get through a screen window. You know, and we get this through just one shot showing the screen window kind of hanging open and a boy yeah. saying, Melinda, then cut to the boat already in the ocean. And Melinda's just there. Yeah. Somehow How'd Melinda has gotten onto the yacht. Again, uh, this is something you would show in a movie, you would think. You would think that maybe you have a bit of suspense. Try to get the audience invested a little bit. Say, have a moment where you uh, show, like, the couple, like, happy on the boat. And then you pan down and then show her, like... You know, like, the type of thing, maybe she could have had, like, a knife in her teeth and been like, come on, I, the boat. No, she doesn't ago, do that. there was an amazing... She could have been, like, Sideshow Bob. <laughs> That's basically what this ending is. It's the bad version of that climax of that Simpsons episode. Years, years and years ago, I watched an episode of Xena where Xena has to creep into a castle, and she gets naked, covers herself in oil... Um, like dark colored oil. Oh. So it's not like. Well, yeah, it was, it was for kids. So she gets naked, <laughs> covers herself for a second, in dark colored oil. Um, like black oil, not like clear oil. And literally carries a knife through her teeth to like crawl into this castle. They should have done a scene like that. If they could have thought of doing it in Xena 20 years like, ago. Like, yeah, so. Again, we don't know how she knows where this boat is. We don't know how she got onto it. Like, how she knows so much about the boat. However... Oh, and then she has a gun. So she's kind of firing at, you know, because there are a bunch of other people on the on the boat. Like, people working for Robert. She starts kind of firing this way and that them. They all comically <laughs> fall off the boat into the water. Well, she orders them to jump. Yeah, she orders them to jump. And we're watching them, like, <laughs> doing this and that <laughs> in what is clearly, like, Tyler Perry's, like, pool in his house or whatever. <laughs> um, and then, of course, we get, you know, our kind of... Did we say that Melinda is wearing Diana's wedding dress? 
which she's stolen out of Diana's yeah, she Yeah, there's also this big obsession with her wedding dress. Like, she goes to the store where her wedding dress is and pours sulfuric acid on it. And, oh, that was a small thing, where we have to... <laughs> co- we see uh, very clearly on the bottle, it says sulfuric acid. <laughs> I saw you were cracking up at that. <laughs> so, yeah, so it, it this whole ending. And then finally, big spoiler, how Melinda dies... Yeah. You know, because she does shoot at Robert, and we're not sure whether and she he hacks at him with an axe, too. Yeah, he hack- she hacks at him with an axe. We see some a little spurt of CGI blood, but then the anchor for the ship somehow gets triggered, and her leg is hap- happens to be right at the, the, the chains. <laughs> like, in, you know, like in an old cartoon or something, the anchor kind of falls and drags her with it. And in a Jesus Christ pose, Tyler Perry shows her, like, underwater with her arms stretched out, horizontal. And then at Robert the end... anchored her in life, so he anchors her in death. You're lucky you're so adorable. Oh, oh Christ. Oh, this movie. I, I don't know. I think... Again, we could talk about this longer, but I think we should maybe start to wrap it up a little oh, bit. Oh, I don't want to. I am so. See, Tyler Perry's anti talent is absolutely beautiful to me. I just want to say to him, shine on, you crazy diamond. You are so bad at this, and it's so awesome. It, it just. It, I don't know. I feel like, you know, we representations of black people in movies we we just had black panther and we had get out and we have had other movies that show black people being like these good competent people and this is like the worst movie with black that i've seen with a main black cast since war room although actually melinda addresses that briefly where she addresses the stereotype of the angry black woman Oh, maybe Which is the does. only moment of self-awareness in this festering train, this festering garbage pile, this train wreck of a movie. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Like, I, I really resent that Tyler Perry thinks he's like this super duper clever guy who's gonna like reverse how we usually see like this kind of movie where the trailer makes us think that we're seeing this woman was scorned and she's gonna get payback and we'll be on her side. No, the movie's not like that. The movie really shows this woman being this more or less passive person, kind of just, you know, and obviously in reflection, um, you know, not doing more, and then suddenly springing into action and becoming Glenn Close times three. (laughs) It is hilarious, and... One thing I enjoyed about this movie was Was seeing me, like, making my faces. Your faces were amazing. There was another aspect being in the theater we should talk about. So, as you guys know, I usually have a rock solid, if you talk during the movie, you should be shot policy. (laughs) However. You haven't noticed it, but Corey's actually a Russian. She's, like, very, like, (laughs) you know, Cold War gulag about people talking in movies. However. In this one instance, if she if she hears you talk, you're gonna be put on the list like in the <laughs> Stalin regime. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Go on. I'm just. However, yeah, in this one instance, yeah. this woman sitting behind us who was kind of providing running commentary through the movie. Yeah. She was amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. At times, I was hearing her just go, "Mm-hmm," and that. But she was also commenting in other ways. <laughs> That's why I feel like Tyler Perry is almost like more like a carnival barker. It's like a carnival barker's idea of like an infidelity movie. But I was saying, I was also saying to you on the car on the way over here, like a lot of people were laughing in our no, theater. At no, no, and I was, I was laughing too. I just, you know, this kind of movie is, you know, I really like infidelity dramas. I yeah. like the dramatic potential they have for the audience. I like how it's it's something where audiences can see something that's not murder or. A, a high crime like that, but it's the worst domestic crime that you could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, uh, domestic crime aside from, you know, not obviously not hitting your spouse or something, but this, it, 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 it doesn't know what it, he, he basically is trying to write great scene after great scene and falling so comically flat, fat on his face. And again, a common thing I think we find in a lot of these epically bad movies is that people don't know how things work. Yeah. Again, the God's Not Dead movies don't know how college or the court system works. Um, War Room doesn't know how, uh, like, hi- uh, firing people works. <laughs> um, the Room doesn't understand most things. <laughs> um, yeah, this is kind of like a room-level bad movie. Yeah, no, I I feel like I got more enjoyment out of this movie than you did. I think so, yeah, that's fair to say. So Maybe I'm just getting a little tired of some certain so bad they're good movies. Maybe. Because this isn't good. This is just... It, you know what it is? It'd be one thing if, again, you have a story behind someone like making Birdemic or The Room or one of these movies where they really don't know what they're doing. So there's almost a certain charm to seeing how, like, terrible they are. Tyler Perry has made dozens of movies. He should know better by He now. should know better. He should put a little... Mo- oh, and that's another thing. It's like, this is the kind of movie where characters will be walking by, like, the city lights by by night. There's a scene where college-age Robert and Melinda are, are walking together... In a kind of moment of where we're happy and in love type of thing, <sighs> they are clearly behind a, a green screen backdrop and then- for no reason at all. And we can tell because they're walking in place. Yeah, they're walking really slowly, and then they get close enough to the camera where they're practically staring right at it. See, I, I think that uh, Tyler Perry, you might want to say, oh, I'm glad you know he had such a rough early life. I'm glad he made it. I think he's a raging egomaniac. The fact that you don't let up a little bit of control to someone who can tell you, hey, maybe, bo- hey, boss, maybe that doesn't look so good. <laughs> it's, bizarrely, it's bizarrely impressive how bad he is at this after having made so many movies. And also being around other people like J.J. <laughs> Abrams and David Fincher who really know how to make a movie. You would think... He is the antithesis of practice makes perfect. No. He is 
practice means you stay terrible. I will say it in what I'll say one positive thing. This time I didn't notice any extras who were looking awkward or anything like that. Or, you know, it, I guess there's that to him because certain other movies he's made, I haven't seen them, but I've heard that at times he'll have movies where extras are not even paying attention in the scene, like how they should be. Like they're looking directly into the camera and you see, I want to watch other Tyler Perry movies now because I feel like I've only seen two Tyler Perry movies: Temptation, Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, yeah, and Acrimony. And Acrimony. But the problem is, though, a lot of his movies are comedies. And I am they not don't interested look... in watching his quote-unquote comedies. You want to watch some of the other serious Tyler? But Perry I movies. do think I will be seeking out other Tyler oh, Perry God. dramas because this man is the perfect combination of ambition and incompetence yeah and it's glorious it's something this was uh and again i'm not making it's actually this actually isn't even the worst movie i've seen so far this year that would probably go to a movie which uh which uh, i'll talk about on another episode uh that clint eastwood made um but uh this one Oh man, this was a this is a ride. At the end of the movie, the same woman that we said was talking through it, like she said as the credits rolled, she puts the C in crazy. That's the kind of audience for this movie. Um, if you've seen this movie or have any thoughts about Tyler Perry, please message us at wagescinema at gmail dot com, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, when we come back, though, I want to compliment watching this movie with a movie we just saw yesterday. That's made by a really good filmmaker and also has a very juicy stalker plot. Yeah, we saw an actually excellent movie. All right. And when we we'll have a little break right here in the podcast, but we're going to put this all in one episode. So uh, stay tuned uh, for us to talk about that. Your life slips away from you, you know, changing your phone number and your email becomes normal. Taking out a restraining order, normal. Relocating to another city, normal. But you still see your stalker everywhere? Rationally, I know this is my imagination, but I'm alone in a strange city and I never feel safe. There's some more forms you need to fill out. It's just routine. I finished my homework. Sawyer Valentini, please follow me. Well, look, I, I don't have a lot of time. I, I should be back at work, so. What am I doing in here? Take off your clothes down to your underwear. I'm not sure what's happening here. The door's locked. It would be better for everyone, especially yourself, if you just do as I ask. There's been some kind of mistake. By signing this, you've consented to voluntary commitment. I am being held here against my will. All right. So welcome back after that little break. Um, now, I wanted to talk about another movie that I feel like kind of pairs up pretty well with this film. And uh, it's another thing that Corey and I saw together, and we were really hopeful that would actually be legitimately good. And luckily it was. And th this movie is called Unseen. And uh, this is the new film by uh, director Steven Soderbergh. Uh, this is uh, the second feature film that he's put out a after his quote-unquote retirement, which was him going off and doing two seasons of The Nick and <laughs> shooting Magic Mike 2. But... Anyway, 
what this movie is, and unfortunately, I, I hope that when you're listening to this, it's still playing in theaters. It's already now in its second weekend, and it might be leaving certain theaters. Um, this is a another film that probably could find its way in Lifetime, but is, again, done by a filmmaker of, of this caliber who has an Oscar and a long career like he has. Uh, Unsane involves uh, a woman... Uh, played by uh, the actress Claire Foy. Um, she plays uh, Sawyer Valentini, which is quite a name, and we can get into that in a little bit. But uh, she's just this woman who works, you know, in like a financial office and seems to have a pretty regular life. But one night she meets a guy in a bar, takes him back to her place, you know, just wants to have a one-night stand. But she kind of flips out. And tells him to leave, and it turns out she kind of has a little bit of a past involving men. And she thinks, well, maybe I'll talk to a counselor or something about that. So she goes to talk at this uh, facility, which seems like, all right, this might be a good place where I can just talk to someone and talk some things out. And after she talks with this woman, who happens to ask her if she's ever been suicidal, and she said once or twice in, my, in the past, I, I maybe I was. She said, "Okay, fill out these forms." She fills out the forms, not really knowing what this is about, and she has been committed into this mental institution for a week. Um, so uh, what we get is kind of, and then but then there's a whole other element involving a a, a person who's working at the hospital uh, that really sets off uh sawyer did i describe the plot adequately i think you did a good job and i just want to tell people if you are at all ambivalent about seeing this movie because for me i saw the trailers for this movie and i thought to myself i like the premise i love the premise but i'm worried this movie is going to be difficult to watch because it will be visually unappealing yeah now we should mention that uh, you know, Steven Soberg, he, he's the kind of director that's been experimenting with technology throughout his career. In a way, he's kind of like a low-key James Cameron, <laughs> maybe in that way, where James Cameron's always trying to push things with cinema. Um, now, sometimes with him, he misses story a little bit. Uh, but for Soderberg, he's someone who is especially curious about the camera and different things that camera can do. Um you know, and he started with 35mm film, because what else did you have in the 80s and 90s? But starting with uh, the movie, actually, before, I mentioned Bubble to you when we were, after we saw this movie. And Bubble is a really low, like, kind of obscure, independent film he made in the mid-2000s. Before that, he made another movie, which I might not mention to you, called Full Frontal. Do you know, do you know what that was? No. Full Frontal was this movie where... Uh, it was like a kind of like a satire of Hollywood. It wasn't that great, honestly. Like I remember seeing it once and kind of find it to be a little. Maybe I'd feel differently about it today, but at the time, I thought it was just a little misshapen and didn't really go anywhere. What was weird with that movie? Half of it was shot on film, but the other half was shot on super low grade video. <laughs> and I think Soberg has like this fascination with using like any tools of cinema because you know he wants to maybe get out of you know you have to have this camera and you have to have this lens and you have to have this look so cut to unseen he decides i'm going to shoot this all on an iphone 
And that was the thing that I think made you a little unwary. Yeah, I was not enthused about this choice before I saw the movie. So when we were going into the film, I was... There were two Corys battling within me. There was... Why does he wrestle inside me? Okay, good. So there was the part of me... Yes, I did refer to myself in the third person. <laughs> like the cool kids do. Good. So there was the part of me that thought this sounded like a great premise for a movie. This will be awesome. And then there was a part of me that thought, I don't want to watch some ugly experimental phone film. So these were the two parts of me doing battle. Now, See, I think the premise won me over more in the look. Because I thought to myself, well, maybe there's a stylistic reason that he's using the iPhone, though, not just because it's obviously so, much cheaper than having a big camera. And I think there was, though. There was, but I'm... Sorry. What I'm trying to say to the people is if you were like me and you had any hesitancy about seeing this film, go see it right now. Because it's amazing. It is so good. I know you don't agree with this statement, but to me, this is the high point of Steven Soderbergh's entire career. I don't know if I... Again, we talked about this yesterday. I don't think that's a a, hyper, a, a hyperbole I can quite go for. Because there, I found that there are certain little flaws with the film that kept it from reaching quite level of greatness. But I'm not going to say I didn't like the movie, because I did enjoy it quite a bit. Um... What what makes this movie stand out in a lot of ways is, uh, for one thing, it's a very tight movie. This this runs just about an hour and a half, and it uses every minute and has really wisely. And it, the trailer might have, might give you a slightly different impression in the sense that you think watching the trailer, oh, so this whole movie is going to be her being committed into this uh, mental institution. And little by little, she's going to be questioning her own sanity and whether she's really crazy and deserves to be in here and and so on. That's not quite the case. The movie deals with that up to a certain point. About halfway through the movie, though, it becomes clear this is really going to be a stalker thriller. Yeah. And but it's a stalker thriller done really intelligently because it really focuses well on the Claire Foy character uh, on Sawyer and on another character, again, that works at this hospital, which, again, like with Acrimony, I think we should just say we're just getting the spoilers. Yeah, from this point onward, spoilers will be coming fast and furious. They're going to be coming at you like, you know, fast and furious, like a, like a, gigantic amphetamine pill <laughs> but before we get into the spoilers i just wanted to give a gushing omg this is amazing see it now review okay so please. before we get into spoilers i just wanted to say please 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 see this movie this is the type of movie that i would love to be financially successful, even though it seems like it's not going to be, which no, is tragic. No, it probably doesn't. I don't know if that might be because Claire Foy, you know, people know her from The Crown, but she's not, like, that big a star yet. Um, this is a star-making turn. It is. A, it's it's the kind of movie that I think that she, if, if the Independent Spirit Awards or something like that 
really paid attention to more movies, they might give mm-hmm. her a Best Actress nomination. She's absolutely incredible in oh, this film. Oh, she's so amazing. She, she manages to find in this character someone that the audience can relate to, but she's also her own uh, type of person in the sense that uh, she, you know, again, she works in this business. Uh, she works in, in like a financial company where she sometimes in the first scene we see her in, she's a bit aggressive on the phone, but she knows we should know then. Okay. She knows how to sell things to people. So when she's talking with the doctors in the hospital, at at points she's a little bit frantic, like no, this is a big mistake. I, you, you got the, you know, this is a, you know, I, whatever. But then she also tries to pitch them almost like a salesman, and talk in that type of voice. Let's get down to brass tacks with spoilers now. Okay, yeah, and also I should mention too that Jay Farrow, who you might know from Saturday Night Live, is in the movie in a supporting role, and he's fantastic. And, and you know, and mostly because he's. You might have seen him play like Obama or, or other characters on SNL. Here, he's very different. He's very like straightforward, kind of like the, meant to be the cooling presence. Also, Juno Temple shows up and is really good. Jo- and now let's get into spoilers with the Joshua Leonard character. Okay, so I thought this movie was going to play around longer with the ambiguity of whether or not she is hallucinating that her former st- stalker is in the hospital mm-hmm. or not. Well, they, they, the thing is, they play with that idea. They do. Like, it's not like... Well, I think what you were expecting was that we've been given movies by the likes of, like, M. Night Shyamalan where we're we're dragged along for like the entire movie and then twist yeah you know then the thing happens here the twist really happens midway through the movie that's where you realize oh oh no no this or this orderly working in the hospital who uh sawyer thinks is her stalker ex or this guy who she used to know back in Boston who was following her around and messaging her that she put a string order on all of a sudden he shows up at first you're sure you're thinking oh is that no you know we don't know if she's an unreliable narrator yeah. but once it's revealed no he's really there he to stalk the her yeah so it, it's then it becomes a different kind of beast yeah so we have her early freak out with this guy that she takes home to sleep with. Yes. She's in the institution. She's mm-hmm. been given psychiatric medications. And when, we, when we're first introduced to her stalker, he's so mild-mannered. Mm-hmm. He's so kind of mild mm-hmm. that you really think to yourself, maybe she is confused. Yeah. However, we learn relatively quickly that no he really is her stalker and the way that steven soderbergh reveals this information is spectacular yeah and what's what's cool about what he does is he leads the audience along to kind of question the 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 main character's sanity in the sense that and this is where i think the iphone comes into play here because of the way that you know we get these close shots of her and of him and Everything feels a little desaturated and really constricting as far as the space of where they're at. And like he'll sometimes just cut to, like, what we're still not sure about this. 
he has like a letter that he took from like her mother's house. And yet, even still in this moment, you're not quite sure. It's only when Sawyer reaches out to her mother, played by Amy Irving, and Amy Irving's there and she's like, no, my daughter's clearly not crazy. You gotta let her out. And they're like, can't, we'll, we'll get into that. But then Joshua Leonard's character sneaks up on her, on the mother. And then the way that, again, storytelling wise, it's, it's gradual, but it's also well-timed because you're led to have enough time questioning her sanity, but then we're able to kind of get past that and move into, no, here's now what was going on between these two characters before and how it's going to resolve itself now. Yeah, and so the real name of the stalker is David Strine. Yeah. And that's the character's actual name. He's pretending to be an orderly named George Shaw. We learn at the end of the film that he has murdered George Shaw and assumed his identity. And that was something that, at first, maybe it was a little misdirection. The way that Soberg shot that, I thought at first that was the, the mother when they find her body and that, and that, that led to some confusion for me. Like, Hey, where, where's the, what, like they found the mother in the, in the park. Then later on the movie, the daughter sees her mother's body uh, in a very (laughs) tense moment. Uh, But then you explained to me, no, no, that's supposed to be George Shaw. Yeah. I I think if I watched the movie again, I think all these pieces would fit in. It's just sometimes when I'm watching a movie like this, I'm paying more attention to the emotional logic than certain little plot details. But we should mention that Joshua Leonard is so good in this movie. The thing that I, I didn't know it was him. I, I, he was in the main credits. I saw his name, but then I guess I just forgot that it was that he was that character. And, uh, because you might remember him because he was, uh, one of the three, uh, film uh, film kids that get lost in the woods in Blair Witch Project. He's the one who's, uh, he's not the one that loses the map. Let's, let's <laughs> in case you've seen the movie, he's the uh, he's the guy who, in Blair Witch Project, I feel like I've I've known that guy. I've known that filmmaker. <laughs> he might even be listening to his podcast. Who knows? Um, but that type was very authentic to me. He, was he in also Blair. and he was also in what? He was in Blair Witch and he was in Hump Day. Yes, and if you've seen Hump Day. And if you've not seen Hump Day, stop this podcast right now and turn on Hump Day on VOD because you will get one of the you know funniest, most awkward comedies of the past 10 years. He's in that movie with Mark Duplass. I think what helps is that he, he put on a little bit of weight to be in this in, for this role. And so he is he's playing this guy who seems very awkward and very like off. And he doesn't appear that way at first. At first he appears very, you know, kind and gentle. But he has that quiet crazy. Yeah, like, what I loved about this performance is, for the majority of the film, he is soft-spoken. He is mild. And you can see how he could trick himself into believing that he's a loving person and Mm. that he loves Sawyer because... For most of the movie, not all of it, but for most of the movie, every time he sees Sawyer, 
He is soft-spoken. He, you know, whispers sweet nothings and platitudes about how much he loves her. And we, you can we need to go away to our cabin in New Hampshire. Yeah, and Things actually, like he doesn't physically threaten her even when he has the opportunity to. Right. Again, initially. So... It's so unnerving because you can understand how a sick, deluded man would trick himself into believing that he is, you know, her thwarted lover. Like, I love the fact that he's not aggressive right away, and that softness to his character actually makes him far creepier than if he had just been... An obvious menace from minute one. You're right. He's like a dorky accountant. Yeah, he's for a lot d- of the movie. A dorky accountant or like a dorky like waiter or something like that. And yeah, very soft spoken. But then when he starts getting triggered, you can see the rage boiling under his eyes. Like he has, he's had like a lifetime of rejection, and a lot of this leads up to this incredible scene. It's really a couple of scenes between uh, Claire Foy and Joshua Leonard. where Because what happens is in this hospital, and we'll talk about things with the hospital in a minute, because this movie actually has some real-world significance. Uh, but uh, Sawyer keeps on, you know, getting violent with certain people, because you're, you're in my face. I, I'm really pissed off. I'm in a hospital against my will. And she's told... At first, she's supposedly only there for 24 hours. She hits an orderly and is told, no, now you're here for seven days. But through a couple of different incidents, sometimes involving Gino Temple, who has, you know, dreadlocks, uh, she winds up in uh, solitary confinement. Yeah, so she's literally in a padded cell. Yeah, a padded cell, which is said, we're, we're told this is in the basement, where even though there are cameras, nobody's really down there. It's like... Basically there because, you know, we're not going to do anything really harsh like mental hospitals used to do, like electroshock, but we will keep you in solitary until whenever. That's when Joshua Leonard comes down um, through, you know, being, I guess you have to suspend a tiny bit of disbelief. He disconnects the cameras. The two of them have a scene together where he's finally like, see, everything's going to be okay now. We can be together. How she responds to all that. Oh, man. Amazing. This. It, the dialogue in this movie is just really believable. That's yeah. what I think helps a lot. It's That's what. I, I, I said this in my review on Letterboxd. I feel like Steven Soberg watched a handful of Lifetime movies and said to himself, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> these, these are interesting. These are not bad. You know what would be, you know what might, you know what might be good? <laughs> If you made these movies well. Because <laughs> so, this is basically Stalked by My Orderly. <laughs> From the makers of Stalked by My Doctor. Now there, now we don't get the scene where Joshua Leonard's like, I'm a good boyfriend, I'm a good boyfriend. Yes, if you've not seen Stalked by My Doctor and Stalked by My Doctor 2, you must see them immediately. <laughs> the stalking. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be like the next one. They need to have this like a Highlander series. <laughs> and, and then, then Eric Roberts can bring in the, the new guy. 
Yeah, what <laughs> what's impressive about this movie is yeah. it's a mixture of, on the one hand, it feels very naturalistic and very realistic, but the dialogue is also smart and articulate. So yeah. it's a good mix of being kind of clever, well-written dialogue and, like, the clarifo- and you know, Claire Foy really, like, goes to town speechifying in the padded room, but that doesn't compromise the realism at any point. No, no, no. She does speechify a bit, and I thought about that as I watched it. If, uh, is, is this starting to get a little speechy? I didn't really feel that, though. I thought she was still in character and being angry in a way that was believable, and, um, and then their second time together was even better, because that's when she's clearly formulated a plan to yeah. get at him. But what I like too, though, in talking about the writing, there are times where, again, I talked about if M. Night Shyamalan had done something like this, oh, God. it would have been super duper hacky. I'm looking at you, Split. I'm sorry. <laughs> I enjoyed your movie, but you were pretty crazy through a lot of that. This, uh, this though, when they have reveal reveals, it's set up in payoff. Like it's actually smart decisions where things that you didn't, you, you re, when I get as good set up and payoff in a script, it's when I kind of almost forget that something was set up. And then when it gets paid off later on in the movie, I'm like, Oh yeah. I had a lot of, Oh yeah. Movies yeah. It's in this. tricky to get that balance just right. Because if it's foreshadowed too obviously, you won't get the surprise. Yeah. But if you foreshadow, if your foreshadowing isn't strong enough, it feels contrived. Mm -hmm. So you've got to get like your Goldilocks porridge just right with the yeah. foreshadowing. Not too much, mm -hmm. not too little. And Steven Soderbergh totally nails it. Yeah, he totally nails it. And again, how he shoots it is also, I, I need to emphasize this that if you think at first that the iPhone style will not be good what you said is you almost your comparison reminds me of uh how in juno how at first you think like oh this dialogue is not going to be this is going to grate on me a bit but then yeah. once that lets go you totally buy into it i know like what you mean where at first you see how he's shooting and you think huh i don't know if this is going to work but then pretty soon you get what he's doing. And it works really well. And that since the movie is so intimate and so claustrophobic. And yeah, it's all based on the psychology of the characters. Like even when she has like her, when she's being admitted, but she's not the admission interview, she's looking directly at the camera and the person's looking back at her. And that's its own unease to it. Yeah. So his whole shooting on a phone thing it worked really well. It was not gimmicky or annoying. Mm -hmm. He also made sure to... I gave Steven Soderbergh a thumbs up in the kitchen right now like he could see me. Maybe he can. We don't know where he has cameras here. <laughs> um, and he also... Um, yeah. And, and, and when he does have one scene that is very stylish, it's for a purpose. There's a moment where... Um, where the quote George Shaw character uh, gives Sawyer a pill that she's not supposed to have. It's it's basically like an amphetamine speed. It was like a weird thing where it was, I thought it was ecstasy at first, but it was really like 
something that was giving her a lot of crazy energy. Yeah, they uh, said they, they, the name of the drug but in I don't the movie, remember it. but it was very long, so we don't remember yeah. it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, how he shoots that scene, that gets really crazy. That's the one time he really lets loose. Um, obviously, like when he's shooting like somebody in a trunk of a car, he has green screen. That's Maybe that's how he could shoot that. But yeah, that scene, I'd love to see how he shot that one scene. Um, now, I want to talk, though, about how this movie has, like, real-world significance. Like, yes. the backdrop, it, it'd be one thing if you were just like, oh, it's a regular mental institution, whatever. But part of the premise of the movie is is kind of going back to, in, for me, in a way, like, how Contagion decided to do its genre. Like, oh, here's this uh, disaster movie where everybody's getting sick and dying. That was very clinical in the way that it dealt with, like, the bureaucracy of uh, how to deal with uh, an epidemic. This felt like, all right, let's look at the bureaucracy of mental institutions. Yeah, I loved this. And actually, as we were watching the film, I remembered an expose about this type of insurance fraud I had read a while ago. Yeah, because we should mention that part of why she's there and being kept there it's not necessarily to do with that they care so much about her mental well-being she you know ha- mentions kind of like the wrong words when she's being interviewed about that she was one that she was suicidal again in the past and that leads them to commit her but they'll only commit her for as long as her insurance will cover yeah, it they're basically defrauding her insurance company they're tricking um, well, people who like are... Like or whatever they call it. Well, they're tricking people who might have problems but do not need to be institutionalized yeah. to signing forms for quote-unquote voluntary commitments. Mm-hmm. And they're, once the insurance company approves a seven-day stay based on suicidal ideation, which is what Sawyer that's what they claim that she has, they basically trick the insurance company and then they warehouse otherwise healthy people, collect the insurance money, and one thing we never see in this movie is any of the characters receiving treatment beyond medication. Yeah, we never see, like, a therapist sitting down. We never get that type of scene. Like, you might get on one floor of the cuckoo's nest where, you know, like, Nurse Ratched sits down and they have their, quote, therapy session, which uh, now I suddenly feel like, huh, you know, I always look down Nurse Ratched, but at least she was <laughs> sort of half-assedly attempting to have a therapy session. Yeah, there's With just... this, you don't really get that. Soberg just shows these people who, some of them look like they are legitimately there. That's what makes it creepy, because he mixes... Claire Foy and Jay Farrow and Juno Temple in with people who, if they're not really mental patients, they're really good, like, no-faced actors. Yeah, so basically, there's a mixture of people who legitimately require psychiatric commitment and people like Sawyer who have been kind of trapped into it by signing off on voluntary commitment forms that they don't really understand. Yeah, and that, and legally speaking, are kind of hard to fight which Amy Irving finds out. 
Yeah. So there's one scene where one patient leads a therapy session amongst other patients while a member of the staff is like playing on her phone. Yeah, and that's what made it interesting is that here you ha- you have these orderlies and you have the patients getting medication, but yeah, but they're not actually getting treatment. And of course, that's how you know it works with such like a type of scam where the doctors are like you know Sawyer does speak with someone who seems like a real doctor, and he's just you know he just takes down notes but doesn't really say anything. Yeah, and I think they the movie tries to make it clear that with the exception of of course the stalker character who is malevolent, the individuals working at this mental institution they're not evil people they're not malevolent people they're not people twirling their cartoon mustaches well they're like benignly bad people though because they've basically taken a job that well i get paid like minimum wage and all i have to do is direct people to go from one room to another they're kind they're lazy or incompetent or trying to do their job well but sincerely overworked yeah well there's that one moment where when sawyer realizes that she's not you know getting out like that you know that first day night she's there she punches one of the orderlies the orderlies reaction is kind of like oh why'd she hit me and the like the kind of head orderly says do not hit back no matter what do not hit back yeah so and so it's it it's not a. It's not the main plot of the movie, but as a backdrop, it's very clever. Yeah, and it's very interesting, and it's actually well grounded. I mean, they're in the third act of this movie. It gets a little crazier and a little less grounded. Yeah, well, that's what I'm going to get to in a moment. The backdrop of the institution itself is very well grounded in reality, and it's very well grounded in real problems. Yeah. And I appreciated how the movie treated the orderlies and how they're not great at their jobs and that they're not very good at their jobs and they're participants in a corrupt system. Yeah. But they're not like snidely whiplash villains. They're the kind of, as you mentioned, they're the kind of bad people that are very recognizable. Yeah, again, they're... they're they are doing their jobs kind of much the same way as other people at Sawyer's job would do their work. They're just kind of there to get a paycheck and go home. It's not quite like how, you know, in in certain other movies you might get, you know, the the, the prison guard that is really nefarious or something like that. You know, these aren't prison, these aren't meant, the orderlies aren't there to do harm. They're just there to, as cogs in this insurance scam yeah and in real life like the, these... the real the real villain is like that woman who's like we provide great care for our patients yeah and in real life these employees are criminally underpaid and it leads to the type of environment where you have trouble retaining workers there's high rates of turnover there's neglect and abuse just because who wants to make minimum wage to deal with the severely psycholo- psych- ah, psychologically traumatized. Yeah. Um, which, you know, again, you could say that's a big problem with our mental health system where, 
we don't really have we're not really going to do something really about it we're going to put on a face like we are treating these people it's almost like steven soberg saying yeah you know these the, this institution might exist that will bring in a person and keep them for like seven days or whatever but what if they need a lot more than that what if they need to stay here for you know months or something you know it, now again that's not the main focus of Sawyer's story but as the backdrop because you believe that you believe you it helps you then to ease you into the genre elements of the movie that's That's a perfect way of phrasing it because there was so much in this movie that felt realistic that felt authentic I was willing to follow Steven Soderbergh down the rabbit hole when things get crazy yeah now that's where I want to get to where I again I still like the 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 second half and third act of this movie quite a bit but where i think i diverge a bit a little bit from you is it's his name his name's david right yeah where david ends up going uh, is in his plans to get sawyer exactly how he wants him you again you have to suspend disbelief through a number of things how he's able to do that he's able to turn off all of the cameras in the padded room so that he can go down there and not be seen that um that there wouldn't be like other cameras in the facility watching things now as you said because these people are underpaid and even the head orderly is this kind of just sweeping under the rug type person there are still certain things though that that happen in the movie for example when david finds that uh that uh, Sawyer and um, and Jay Farrow's character is named Nate. When Sawyer and Nate are getting cl- a little bit closer together and try- being friendly because Nate's really not there, like, in a bad way. He's there for, quote, um, opioid reasons. Yeah, but Nate's and an undercover re- reporter. Yeah, he's an undercover reporter. It, it feels like that... Um, I don't know. There are just certain things that I, I could try to buy in the moment... But after I left the movie, I thought, huh, that part, I had to, hmm. They really had to do some plot logistics there to let make yeah. me think that. So basically, you couldn't fully suspend disbelief. Not for not for everything. I was able to do it for some things. But at a certain point, it was just, you know, we're led to believe that, that David takes over George's, uh, you know, he, he, he kills him and takes over who he is so he can have this job, so he can get Sawyer. And that's fine. I could actually believe that up to a point. Um, now, as far as the timeline of, you know, when he killed George and dumped his body and that he's discovered so conveniently, that's the type of thing, well, all right, it's a movie, you have to kind of just take that. I get that. But just certain things that he's able to do near the end and not get found out, it a lot of things have to come together all at once for that to happen. And it's almost ironic though. Cause when you think about it, it's because of David that the, the hospital gets kind of taken down Yeah. because the, the very place that he was kind of lurk get there. So that when Sawyer was put into that position, he, um, you know, he'd be there uh, because he kills Nate. 
I have such a strong emotional reaction to the death of Nate, too. Nate's a supporting character, and you would think that... But you grow to like him legitimately. Like He's just a very down-to-earth, cool guy that and that ends up being the one person that that she can talk to. Yeah. Um, see, in other movies, you would have that kind of character, and he would be a little bit more hackneyed or maybe not as well-written. But yeah. here, it works just right so that when you see him you know, tortured and killed. It's very upsetting. Yeah, and Nate's torture and murder is um, framed as a drug overdose because, remember, Nate has gone in there pretending to be a drug addict who Mm -hmm. is detoxing. So it's framed as a drug overdose that he steals some fentanyl and then ODs. Yeah, although the fact that they... You do an autopsy on that guy and you don't see that he got, like shocked before that though i guess maybe somehow the david slash george character knew how to do all that stuff like that's again that's something you have to just kind of buy into because david's kind of like the super villain of the movie um i think also it was near the very end too when uh, we cut ahead six months later and there's like kind of like it's a short scene but as a denouement I just found how Sawyer's now, she keeps seeing bearded men as David. If you've seen the last scene in the movie Misery, it's basically a duplicate of that scene. Yeah, it's a bit of that scene. Well, it's it happens in a lot of movies yeah. like this. I, I felt that was just a little tired. That that felt like something that should have been... I, and I don't know, maybe they maybe they just ran out of ideas or didn't know how to end it. I just felt like for this kind of movie, they could have done something a little bit more clever or a little bit more interesting. Um, now, again, I'm making it sound like I'm very critical of the movie. I'm not. I, I I think this is a very superior quality film. I just, I guess I'm just nitpicking because I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm a critic. I'm, I'm, that's why, that's okay. why I do. I don't think anyone should ever apologize for using their critical faculties. I can't stand it when... Uh, like, person A critiques a movie, and then person B says, like, oh, it's just a movie, shut up. I think the idea that we're supposed to turn off our brains and uncritically accept Mm -hmm. whatever is vomited on the screen for us, I think is ridiculous. Well, well, it's not just... So, never apologize for nitpicking. Uh, We're holding our hands just now. I love your beautiful mind. Well, anyway, it's not just that. Also, I think because the movie was logistically so tight, for a lot of the running time that when it came to things like being able to turn off the security cameras whenever and being able to have so much, like being able to do so much in that hospital without, you know, getting like a minor reprimand here and there, but not much more than that. Uh, it, you know, I would think like even just, even the whole thing where he gives her the wrong medication should have been a bigger deal. But again, you you roll with that because it's in the plot of the movie. Um, I think, be, but because everything else is so high masterpiece quality, the other stuff might have just gotten to me a little that much more because yeah. I wanted it to all be as you know top amazing as mm. that. Because when you said that this is your favorite Soberg movie, I could think of a few other films I, I still prefer over this well, one. Well, you've actually seen all his movies, and I've yeah. seen less than half of his movies. I would say, though, this is this could be in my top ten, though. 
I would I, not my top five, but probably somewhere. This in my is top definitely five. my favorite Soderbergh movie ever. And I guess the difference between you and I is, I think Soderbergh did a good enough job selling the shambles the hospital was in. To justify some of your nitpicks, however, never apologize for them. Never apologize. No, no I wasn't for... really apologizing to the audience. I just thought maybe you wanted an apology. No, but I. <laughs> now you're listening to us be like schmoopy critics. That's not as fun. Yeah. Um, I love watching you analyze movies. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> um, all right. So anyway, uh, any final thoughts on, on this movie? Oh, I just want to, like, I don't know. I just want to squee and fangirl about it and say it's awesome and it's amazing. And you should go see it. And every part of it is just so satisfying and so well-constructed. It's an extremely tense movie, too. We should yeah. mention that. If if you... It, I was squeezing your arm a lot. I was giving it a workout, wasn't I? I had a couple of moments where I was watching the movie and thought, oh, oh. Yeah, this is really tense, and it's really suspenseful. And not only will you have an intellectual appreciation of Soderbergh's craft, but you will have a strong, visceral response. It, it, again, it reminded me of how, um, not to this level, but certain moments in Contagion, uh, that the moments in that really creep me out because they're done just so straightforward and deadpan. Uh, even de you know, in that movie when... I, I still remember when Kate Winslet mentions about how many times we touch our face uh, during a day. I've had my hands on my face for like the entire time we've been recording. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's things like that where he has such a keen understanding of human nature um, that works for this kind of movie. Um, again, if you've happened to see this movie, uh, Please give us an email to Wages Cinema at Gmail or Facebook or Twitter. Uh, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud and all the other places you can find us. Um, now, when we come back, though, we're going to have a very big discussion about a cinematic icon. An that, icon. An icon. A big, shining, um, big-boobed icon. <laughs> I don't know how to presented to hype that up but you're gonna to want to listen to us talk about uh this particular actress and her work so uh stay tuned for for that little bit <laughs>